It's Monday, November 11th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The next phase in the impeachment inquiry starts this Wednesday, as televised hearings will feature diplomats that have already testified behind closed doors. First up is the top diplomat in Ukraine, William Taylor. Taylor was upset that security aid to Ukraine was held up for political reasons. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for what to expect from the hearings, GOP defenses for Trump, and whether Michael Bloomberg will run for president. Next, a million Americans are arrested every year for drunken driving. And in many cases, the breathalyzer test is what seals the deal. But a recent New York Times investigation has found that these devices can give skewed results because of human error or because the devices haven't been properly calibrated. There have been so many errors that judges in Massachusetts and New Jersey have thrown out more than 30,000 breath tests in the past 12 months alone. Stacy Cowley, reporter for The New York Times, joins us for why we can't always trust the breathalyzer test. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Like most members of Congress, I have not been in the room for all of these hearings and secret proceedings. There will be a taint to this one-sided, partisan approach to impeachment that is different than has been used before. And so I think there will be intense skepticism. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Glad to be back. The Impeachment inquiry is moving into its public phase this week. On Wednesday will be the first day for these televised hearings, and the top U.S. diplomat to Ukraine, William Taylor, is going to be the first witness that comes out. Now, all of these people have already testified behind closed doors, and Democrats are really hoping that this could help sway public opinion with this whole matter. What are we expecting from these televised hearings this week, Ginger? That's right. The Democrats who are sort of running the show here know that they have potentially a small amount of the public's attention and that the most of it is going to come at the beginning. So if anyone's going to be watching, they're going to watch these first hearings. And that's why Bill Taylor is slated to go first. He offered some of the most damning testimony we understand of the president. We can look at text messages he was sending at the time. This was all unfolding very critical of the president's demands on Ukraine that they say they were investigating Joe Biden, as well as a a 2016 kind of conspiracy theory. And they think that he's going to say the kind of things that are going to sway the American public to their side, that the president acted wrongfully, that he did something wrong. I would expect to see some fireworks, if not between Bill Taylor and the members of Congress asking him questions, but between the members of Congress themselves. This is going to be heavily scrutinized and watched by both sides. This is still kind of the early phase. We're still just hearing from witnesses. This is not the Senate phase where they will decide if the president would be removed from office. So we're still very early on this. But the Republicans are having a tough time still trying to defend the president on all of this. And there's a lot of mixed messaging They're kind of all in it from themselves. You know, everybody has a different way of explaining it away, basically. That's right. And, And as you said, it is very early. If we were to compare this to sort of a criminal process, the closed door portion was like the detectives doing the investigation. Now we're in sort of the grand jury portion in which we start to hear from witnesses where they start to assess what they were saying. And there may be some effort at defense. But as you said, Republicans are struggling to come up with what that defense is. We've seen a number of them try to argue 
that the process is unfairly slanted against the president. They're demanding the ability to call their own witnesses, including an effort to unmask the whistleblower. We've also started to see an emergence of Republicans saying, well, you know, everything they said the president did is true, but there's just nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with making demands of a foreign leader. President Trump has not really liked that argument as much. And we've seen him more inclined to argue about process or just calling the whole thing invalid, that that there was no quid pro quo, as he likes to say, there was no demands that were inappropriate. Republicans, for their part, have released a wish list for witnesses that they hope to call to the impeachment inquiry. Among them are Hunter Biden, uh, one of the some board member that was on Burisma also. So they're hoping to kind of insert some of what the president has been uh, wanting to get through all along, hoping that if they do find any little nugget uh, of corruption or something, that this kind of proves their point that this is why they needed these investigations done in the first place. One argument that we haven't heard the president or his allies make that's going to be really important to see if they can by calling witnesses like that is to argue that what Trump did, the demands that Trump was making of the Ukrainians were in American interests, that they were in the interests of the country as a whole and not just in the interest of Donald Trump and his reelection. And that's why we're going to see them make some effort to try to bolster the legitimacy of the president's requests. You know, the president himself hasn't even really tried to lay out the case that he did this for some overarching reason that was going to benefit the American public. But trying to undermine Hunter Biden, other Americans who were involved in this Ukrainian company is an effort to say that there was a good reason that the president did this that wasn't just benefiting himself. Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney has been popping up in the news a lot lately. He's been popping up actually in a lot of the transcripts that have been released from people that have testified already. And most notably, former National Security Council official Fiona Hill described a meeting between uh, Ukrainian officials and Gordon Sondland where they basically said, hey, you know, we have a, a meeting in place. I have a deal with Mick Mulvaney if you guys are going to do these investigations. So He's popping up in a lot of transcripts, and he just joined uh, in a suit asking the courts to decide whether he should testify in the impeachment inquiry or listen to the president and basically stay out of the whole thing. You know, Mick Mulvaney, a former member of the House that when uh, I was covering him when he was a House member, was quite insistent that the Obama administration had to comply with the demands of Congress. I imagine he feels a little conflicted about the idea of ignoring a requirement to testify before Congress. So you're right. We saw him join this lawsuit, which feels a little funny because he sort of joined a lawsuit against his own boss, at least Donald Trump, of which they said was because he was actually suing the congressional leaders who were also on this lawsuit, but he didn't have a choice but to list all of the, the defendants. And so trying to get a court to tell him what he should do here because he probably wants to, to follow the, the demands he's made himself in the past, but at the same time wants to do what his boss wants, which is not testify before Congress. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's shaping up in this whole thing, and you know, we're talking about defenses and all that stuff, uh, one of the things that's shaping up is that maybe the president really didn't direct this, all this stuff, and this was really Rudy Giuliani and Gordon Sondland and Mick Mulvaney that were acting on their own to do this. So that's just kind of one of the lines that are, have been uh, popping up. So, yeah, maybe he just wants a little bit of guidance on, on which way he should be going. The last thing I just wanted to bring up very briefly on the Democratic side, Michael Bloomberg, former mayor of New York, has said he's interested in maybe running. There's some polling that says that he's got about 4% of uh, support. I, maybe it's just name recognition there. 
but he's got a 25% unfavorable rating from people. Uh, a lot of people are saying it's just a lot of uh, smoke and mirrors. He probably won't run. That's right. I talked to a lot of people who speculated that he could end up not running, but there's there's a possibility he has the money to run his campaign and, and self-fund to not collect money from donors and to still be as well-funded as the rest of the candidates in the field. He would shake the field up a little bit, although, as you point out, there's a lot of people in the Democratic Party who think that being a billionaire is an inherent disqualifier and would not support him for that reason. And he would have to overcome that obstacle should he decide to run. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. A lot of times when you see large numbers of tests get thrown out, it's human error. Someone somewhere along the line made a mistake in how the machines were set up and used. And when that happens, the results can be pretty catastrophic. Massachusetts just had to throw out every single breath test done in the state for eight years, which is a pretty sweeping result. Joining us now is Stacy Cowley, reporter for The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Stacy. Thanks for having me. Every year, there are more than a million drunken driving arrests in America but the devices that police use to test driver's breath, the widely known breathalyzer, may not be working all the time. A lot of times they're not calibrated right. They're throwing off false readings. There's a lot of stuff going on with these things. And there's been thousands of convictions that could be at risk because of the inaccuracy of these machines. Stacy, you and a few colleagues did an extensive look into court records and things, how these breathalyzers are working. Tell us a little bit about what you learned. So we spent close to a year digging through this because there was a lot of material we had to go through to kind of get our heads around this issue. And what really got us going on it was in two states in particular, in New Jersey and Massachusetts, we've seen tens of thousands of breath tests in each of those states be invalidated because of legal rulings and challenges to them. So we started taking a closer look about what exactly is going on. And what we found in those two states in particular is that a lot of times when you see large numbers of tests get thrown out, it's human error. Someone somewhere along the line made a mistake in how the machines were set up and used. And when that happens, the results can be pretty catastrophic. Massachusetts just had to throw out every single breath test done in the state for eight years, which is a pretty sweeping result. Yeah, as you mentioned, the calibration has a lot to do with this. In some cases, the breathalyzer was giving results that were 20 to 40 percent too high. Tell us a little bit of background on how these breathalyzers work. Way the breathalyzer works. It's based on a scientific principle known as Henry's Law. And basically, there was this realization that you could use breath to make an approximation of someone's blood alcohol level. And when it's done correctly, it works pretty well. The scientific principle is correct. Judges and scientists have taken a close look at this for decades, and scientifically, it holds up. The challenge, of course, though, is that a breath test machine is a piece of technology, and no computer is perfect. There can be mistakes. So for years, lawyers have been trying to take a closer look and say, okay, how do these machines that police officers use actually work? And part of the challenge around that has been that the manufacturers treat this as proprietary. They don't want people to take a closer look at this. So it typically requires a whole lot of litigation to even get a hold of one of these machines if you're not a police officer and a whole lot of litigation to get a closer look at the software. And in general, when that's happened and there's been large court cases over these things, generally what 
experts find is they find a few errors. They generally don't find catastrophic errors. Pretty much every time this has gone to a state Supreme Court, the Supreme Court has decided, hey, the machines are generally reliable. But in every case, there's been some little errors that come to light. Where things more often go wrong, though, is that the machines are scientific instruments. They have to be maintained correctly, programmed correctly, used correctly. And quite often when lawyers look under the hood, they find that something's gone wrong in that process. Part of the other thing is that there's about two dozen companies making these testing machines. So standards and regulations are different from obviously state to state and company to company with these things and calibrations are different for each machine. So it can really kind of become a big web of confusion there. And one of the biggest questions that kind of arises from all of this is, so a lot of these machines can be miscalibrated. So there's a lot of miss, uh, you know, a lot of people who were um, uh, charged with drunken driving that maybe shouldn't have. And in the case of, as you said, Massachusetts and New Jersey, where some of these cases are being thrown out because of these false readings, there could be a bunch of people that are getting off the hook that are actually dangerous people who are repeat offenders of drunk driving. One of the real challenges when one of these things blows up in a big way, like happened in Massachusetts, is you really end up with a double-edged sword there. And then in Massachusetts, because these tests have thrown out, they've got 28,000 convictions, 28,000 people who were convicted based on tests that the court now acknowledges are unreliable. And that sort of leaves you with people trapped on both sides. You've got potentially innocent drivers who are now facing punishment for things that they may not have done. But you also have a huge number of drivers in that 28,000 convictions who probably were drunk, who probably did do it, and are now potentially going to be able to have their case is reopened and potentially overturned because of this problem with the technology. The article that you wrote about this is very extensive, very good. There was a few moments where I was reading and I just kind of said, wow, to myself. One example that you gave with kind of the difficulties of all this was in the state of Washington, and they chose to use this product. It's called the Alcatest 9510. And this goes through with how things are calibrated. And I guess there, they didn't even bother to have anybody evaluate the software. One of the state toxicologists in some of these documents that you were able to find, they said, well, we just threw caution to the wind, proceeded without paying up front for an independent evaluation and just kind of see what happens with it. I think that was one of the things that we were a little surprised by in doing our investigation is we kept coming across what seemed like lax oversight of these things. And the reality is, you know, states are resource constrained. They're strapped. They don't have endless time and money and expertise to throw at these problems. So we found that in quite a lot of them, there's this sort of instinct to just trust that the machine's going to work, to not want to look too closely, because that's an expensive and hard thing to do. So yeah, Washington State was one example where they chose not to spend what would have been about $80,000 to hire independent experts to independently review the device's software. They decided that wasn't a necessary safeguard. And what happened after that? Because a local judge did grant a request from a defense lawyer to review some of the software and the people that ended up making a report about this, they wrote a nine-page draft report called Defective Design Equals Reasonable Doubt. And they kind of took this thing apart and realized that there was problems from the beginning. They did what they started down an evaluation. They took a very close look at the software source code and compiled reports saying, hey, here's some potential problems with this. And then they made a legal mistake. They went and took that report to a convention of defense lawyers. And the company came back to them and said, hey, we only gave you this software under a protective order, under a seal. You aren't supposed to use for any commercial purposes what you've learned. And we think going and talking to defense lawyers and trying to market yourself as potentially an expert witness for hire, hey, that's a commercial purpose. You can't do that. And facing the prospect of getting 
getting basically sued into oblivion by a company that had a lot more money than they did. They basically retracted the report and shut down their company. But that was a good example of how there is a lot of secrecy around these things and efforts to get a closer look at exactly what the machines are doing are really complicated and are often heavily opposed by the companies. You mentioned there was a lot of lax oversight in some of these instances. In Colorado, there was kind of a different thing that happened. One of the people that were running the labs and running these machines were feeding false information into these I think this was the one that was giving false readings or something like that. This caused this whole thing for Colorado to have to go back to the drawing board with them. One of the challenges with these things is that they almost never come to light unless you have a motivated whistleblower or a lot of very expensive litigation. So two of the examples we cite in our article, in Colorado, there was a lab employee who said that, hey, the process by which we calibrated and rolled out our fleet of new machines when we switched devices was really chaotic and potentially really problematic. He said that a bunch of people calibrated machines using his signature that he never touched. The lab director's signature was appearing on certifications that she didn't know her signature was appearing on. So there was a lot of issues there. And then Washington, D.C. was a similar situation where they brought in an outside contractor who tested their devices and found that every machine was giving results 20 to 40 percent too high. That's something that probably would never have come to light had he not really prominently gone around internally and said, oh, my God, this is a huge problem. You have to announce this and disclose this. I think that's one of the concerns we hear about these things is that it really relies on someone internally speaking up and doing the right thing, or you just never find out about it. One of the stories that you shared and you kind of follow throughout the entire article was that of a man named Matthew Motter, and he got caught with a breathalyzer. I think he blew a .08, and he went on a years-long journey to kind of try to figure this whole thing out. And in his case, where it was being litigated, Everybody was right on that breathalyzer test. You blew over the amount, you're kind of done. But his case specifically was one of those ones in Massachusetts where it ended up being that it was thrown out later. Tell us a little bit about his story. His was an interesting one because, again, he was someone who blew right on the legal limit, 0.08. And it's an interestingly ambiguous case because I honestly can't tell you, was he drunk or not? I don't think anyone can. He absolutely insists he wasn't. He thinks there must have been something wrong with the technology. And in the end, after this five-year legal fight, his breath test ended up being one of the ones that was thrown out in Massachusetts because the courts decided that the process through which the machines had been calibrated was not reliable. Not meaning that the results were necessarily flawed, but meaning that scientifically they couldn't be sure they were correct. And in court, you can't use scientific results if you can't prove that they're accurate. So his breath test was tossed out and he was eventually able to get that drunk driving charge off of his record. But it was certainly telling. I mean, that was a five-year fight that cost him about $30,000. These are crimes that carry heavy penalties and are very expensive to fight. So what do we do with all this information now? For anybody who has gone through this and maybe has gotten caught drunk driving and the breathalyzer nailed them, they're probably really pissed off hearing some of this stuff. For other people who are just kind of worried in general that they might get caught up, they might be cautious of this. But as you said in the article, between two states, Massachusetts and New Jersey alone, at least 42,000 convictions are at risk because of some of this stuff, of some of these faulty readings or miscalibrations, things like that. So what do we make of all this? Part of why this was a challenging story for us is that there's no easy answers here. This is a really complicated technology. The more we delved into it, the more we're like, wow, there's a whole bunch of very specialized issues that this brings up legally, forensically, scientifically. So the takeaways we kind of came away from it were, first of all, the easiest way to avoid getting caught for drunk driving. Don't get in the car and drive. 100%. Drinking. Yeah. That's the simplest thing. If you do have a breath test that you think, hey, something could be off here consulting a local lawyer is definitely the best way to go. I mean, this is something that requires a lot of specialized legal and scientific knowledge and really finding a local expert who has those skills is very useful. We're also hoping that the article will potentially 
draw judges and policymakers and lawmakers to take a closer look at the oversight, because really to deal with this problem systemically, these sorts of things don't start to get fixed without closer oversight. Stacy Cowley, reporter for The New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for your interest. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>